the Redemption Church uh, podcast. Uh, my name is Josh Butler. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited today. We have just started a new series on the book of Exodus that we're going to be in for the next few months. And one of the things we want to do today is to actually try and situate Exodus within the broader biblical story and see how themes from Exodus play out throughout the biblical story. Uh, and to this end, we have the amazing Alistair Roberts here with us. Uh, Alistair, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, Alistair has uh, recently written a book called Echoes of Exodus uh, with his co-author, Andrew Wilson. It's called Echoes of Exodus, Tracing Themes of Redemption Through Scripture. And Alistair, I was really excited to have you on. Uh, you are a uh, one of the hosts on the Mere Fidelity podcast, um, which is one of my favorites. Uh, for those of you who are looking for something good to listen to, definitely highly recommend that one. Uh, and as well, you work for a couple different institutes. Man, you are all over the place with the uh, Theopolis Institute, the Davenant Institute, and the Greystone Institutes as a theologian. Uh, and I have just really appreciated your work, Alistair. Uh, one of the things, you know, kind of a personal confession, I guess, is often when I'm doing sermon preparation, and if I hit a troublesome passage, something where I'm like, what is going on here? One of the first things I'll often do is go Google search Alistair Roberts and da -da -da details from that passage. And uh, it's, I've often found it very helpful um, that you often blogged on it and, and had some thoughts that have been a great resource. As an example of that, um, in the fall, we're doing, or in the winter, we we're doing a series um, where I was preaching on John and the woman caught in adultery in John's gospel and uh, and referenced and kind of drew out some of the backdrop in the trial of jealousy uh, ceremony in the Old Testament. And uh, a lot of you folks, redemption folks were like, oh my gosh, that was so insightful and interesting. Wow, you know, and, um, credit where credit's due, that was Alistair. <laughs> I was one of those, I, I looked up online and uh, and found your, 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 your work really insightful, uh, not only there, but in lots of ways, uh, particularly in helping us trace out themes throughout the biblical story. Um, well, Alistair, I'm wondering if you could maybe as an intro, just talk a little bit about uh, why why you and Andrew decided to write the book, what the backdrop to it was, and what some of your hopes and themes were uh, related to Exodus and the book. Well, it originated with a project I had over Lent. Often what I'll do for Lent is take up something new while giving other things up. So often it will be social media I would give up social media for Lent and then take up some writing project or some other project of maybe writing someone a letter every day. Um, but for this particular Lent, I decided to do a series on the story stories of the Exodus throughout the scripture. So the project was called 40 Days of Exodus, and I started doing it on my blog. Every single day, I'd write a reflection upon some Exodus theme within some part of scripture, going through it sequentially from the very beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, I arrived at the 22nd um, of these series of reflections, and it was just spiraling out of control. So I abandoned that project at that point. That was just around the time I was starting to get into the story of David. A few years later, Andrew Wilson, who's co-host on the Mere Fidelity blog podcast, came across this series of posts and he said, this stuff is amazing. I'd never seen many of these connections before. But when I see them, I can't unsee them, and they make a lot of sense. So can we write a book about this together? If you give me some notes and other things, I can write them for a more popular audience. So I'd had 
I'd already written 80,000 words on the blog. And then I wrote another 70,000 words and notes and other things that I sent to Andrew. And he largely wrote the text of the book, knocking it down to 40,000 words of readable, accessible and um, exciting text, <laughs> which was far <laughs> more readable than anything that I had beforehand. <laughs> so it was a real pleasure to work with Andrew. And I think he gives the book a lot of its punch. But that project was also designed to give people, I think, a sense of how to read the Bible more generally, that we're not just reading a, a sequence of detached stories, but we're reading one greater story. And these things are all connected in ways that shed light upon each other. So when you're reading the story of David, read the story of David alongside the story of Jacob, or read the story of Jesus alongside the story of Abraham. And these stories open up as a result. And now the Exodus theme is one of the key <clears throat> themes of scripture. It's not yeah. the only key theme, but it's one of those themes that you can trace throughout the entirety of the text. And I wanted to give people some sense of how it works. Mm, well, that's one of the things that struck me when I was reading it was just how, uh, you know, there are some major Exodus themes that people uh, maybe more quickly pick up on the Passover meal, uh, tied to Jesus' Last Supper, things like that. Uh, but one of the things that struck me reading through your guys' book was just how ever-present that theme is. And once you start to see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> and so I, I wonder, you guys use the analogy, uh, this might be helpful to, to set us up here, you use the analogy of scripture as music, uh, as sort of a, a the analogy of music as a metaphor or a way of approaching scripture. Um, and you talk about the way that the analogy or metaphor we use can kind of impact or shape uh, are you know what 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 we see? So maybe a military metaphor might give you some emphases. A uh, uh, fabric metaphor might give you other emphases. Music though helps to highlight certain aspects of the way scripture is working as a text. And so I'm curious as we're going to be going through the specifics within Exodus in the series, but as we try and situate Exodus within the biblical story as a whole, could you maybe talk to this idea of scripture as music and how some of the themes in Exodus, we can approach listening for them in the symphony of Scripture as a whole. Absolutely. I think the metaphor of music provides a number of things. First of all, it gives us a way of conceptualizing the broader unity of Scripture. That's not a unity in just playing out certain architectonic um, patterns that just repeat each other in an exact way. When you listen to the themes and the motifs of scripture, they're always varied. They're always changing in slight ways. And those changes are very significant. It's like listening to a piece of music where there are various, a series of variations upon a theme. And what you're hearing in that case is not just the same theme played over and over and over again, but there are variations, there are changes, there are inversions, there are ways in which that theme is old but yet new. And when we're reading the story of scripture, we're seeing a similar sort of thing, I believe. We're encountering a text that is using familiar motifs, but changing them, transforming them, inverting them. And it's surprising the reader, but doing so in a way that provides the reader with structures of understanding that already exist. Other things about the metaphor of music that I think are helpful is that music is one of the best ways in which we can explore time. Time is a realm where things are connected to, 
to each other. When we usually think about time, we think of it merely in terms of a sequence of events, um, on, in terms of clock time. Whereas when you're listening to a piece of music, music is something that explores time in a deeper way than that. There can be ways in which a particular motif being played connects that time with something at the very beginning of a piece um, and the ways that certain rhythms play out. Mm. That's another part of it, that when we're listening to scripture, we're hearing certain rhythms. It's also mm. something that helps to explain the transition from scripture to our lives and our worship. So when we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, we're connecting with events that have happened beforehand. We're memorializing the Lord's death until he comes. And as we memorialize that, we are doing yeah. so. It's almost as if there's this great stone that's been dropped in the middle of the lake and all the ripples are coming out from that, that foundational event. And week by week, we are born anew on those, mm. a new ripple coming out from that towards the shore of God's new creation. Now, that's one metaphor. Music also provides others the way in which God's spirit is orchestrating yeah. the work of history in a manner that brings us into the pattern of Christ's work. So we are conformed to Christ as we live out. We are brought into the same motifs, as it were. The same themes are the ones that are at work within our lives, in our church. And when you read the New Testament, I think it bears that out. A lot of the New Testament epistles will use the motif of Exodus to situate um, us as Christians on the map of Scripture. Mm, that's great. Yeah, well, maybe we can dive in then and look at some of these uh, sort of melodies and motifs. And I'm curious, what would you say, what are some of the major melodies and motifs in Exodus we should be attentive to? And maybe one way of going into this is um, we actually will have just been this week in uh the story of uh, Moses, just kind of the opening of the birth of Moses. And you talk in the book about how Moses himself experiences kind of a mini exodus. It's a, his, his birth story uh, is an exodus story, really. And could you maybe talk to some, maybe briefly to some of the ways that the Moses story is an anticipation of, his birth is an anticipation of what's to come. Um, and then we can move out to outside of the book of Exodus. Absolutely. If you look at the beginning of the story of Moses, there is a threat to his life. There is the attempt of Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys. And he's rescued by Jochebed, his mother, put into uh, an, an ark of, and he's placed among the reeds. And then he's brought out of there by drawn out of the water and given a name connected with being drawn out of the water. Later on, Miriam comes on the scene and Miriam's involvement there is also interesting. So just the basic structure of his deliverance as an infant reminds us of, he, of what later happens to Israel itself. Israel is drawn out of the water in the same way as Moses is. Moses was first of all drawn out of the water, rescued from the fate of being drowned in the river. And then Miriam comes on the scene. And in the same way, Israel, it's drawn out of the water of the Red Sea. And then Miriam is the one that leads the women and prays at the other end. I think that helps us to see parallels between Moses' life and the life of Israel. It also helps us to understand broader patterns that we see in Scripture, where the leader of the people mm. will often undergo an experience that 
um, foreshadows what will happen to the people as a whole or anticipates or provides the foundation for. We could think about Abraham, the way that he lives out the pattern of Israel's later life, or the story more particularly of Christ, where the things that happen to Christ provide a foundation and a pattern within which we live, within which the church and the people of God lives out its life. Mm, that's great. Yeah, so you mentioned Abraham, and one of the things that really struck me in the book, well, well first of all, that Moses, that is really powerful. So we see Moses, like Israel is going to be, he's threatened, he's under, he's under threat, and yet he's protected. He goes through the water, and I think that you mentioned the ark uh, there. It's the only other time that the word, it's the same word as Genesis 6, where God protects uh, Noah and the ark and all through through the waters. And so Moses, like Israel, Israel is going to be taken out of Egypt through the waters, drawn out and, and into uh, towards the promised land. So that's powerful. It seems like it sets up, yeah, Moses' own birth is anticipating the story that's about to come. Uh, but yeah, you draw out how this also shows up, like in Genesis, for example, if we go earlier in the biblical story, uh, we see Abraham as one of many examples, but how Abraham's life has a sort of an Exodus-shaped pattern. Uh, can you talk some of the, or loads of details in there, but maybe some of the big picture motifs of Abraham's life and how, um, how it bears kind of an Exodus shape? I think the main Exodus shape that we see within Abraham's life is provided within the first three chapters of his story, or from chapter 12 to 14. So in chapter 12, he there is a famine within the land, and he goes down into Egypt to get food to escape from the famine within Canaan. While in Egypt, Sarai is taken by Pharaoh, and there's a sort of oppression there. There's judgment upon Pharaoh by God, where God judges Pharaoh with a series of plagues. Pharaoh finds out what's happened, gives Sarai back, sends Abraham away with many gifts. Then Abraham goes back to the land with his nephew Lot. They divide the land between them and he wanders um, around the land. He's told that he will inherit all of this. And then the next chapter, there's a great battle where he goes throughout the land. When you actually see the the distance that he's moving within this battle against the kings, it's quite significant. He's going the full length of the land. And then he wins this victory and then has an encounter with Melchizedek, king, king of Salem. Reading that story, it's playing out in advance the story of Israel. It's the story of Israel with the famine in the land, going down into Egypt, being provided for in Egypt, but then being oppressed in Egypt. God judging their oppressors with plagues. They're being set free, going back to the land with many gifts, the division of the land, and then finally a great winning victory within the land that eventually will lead mm. them to um, Jerusalem. Yeah. Now, I think that provides a pattern within which Israel's later life is lived out. And when they live that out, they'll be able to look back at the story of Abraham and said and say that this all happened to our forefather beforehand. We're walking in his footsteps. And on the other hand, you can say that Abraham foreshadows and anticipates um, all that will happen to his descendants. Wow, that's powerful. So Abraham is uh, yeah, kind of a foreshadowing of Israel's story that's about to come. And that's so helpful. It, you know, I think of, uh, I used to get confused about what's going on with the story where you know, Abraham and Sarah go down into Egypt and Pharaoh is, uh, you know, takes Sarah into his home and then 
there's the plagues and all. And suddenly realizing, yeah, like, oh man, Sarah is a picture of the people of God. Like in, in some ways, in this case, it's uh, the bride of Abraham, God's representative. And in the future, it's going to be the bride of God, God's own people who he's called his own into covenant with him. And the, the plagues on Pharaoh, you know, ultimately to bring Sarah out and later to bring Israel out. Um, once you start seeing those motifs, it's like you can't unsee them anymore. Uh, you use the picture example of kind of Russian dolls in the book. Could you talk for a sec about that? Like what, I thought it was a helpful image for how some of these images are working, particularly in Genesis where it's anticipating what's about to come uh, in the Exodus. Yes, there are a large sequence of these different events and often can also, there are things that connect persons. So the story of Moses, as we've seen already, in it's a story that contains in principle the seed of the story of Israel, likewise the story of Abraham. And like Russian dolls can be contained within each each other, eventually you see that these stories, they're not detached things, rather they are patterns within patterns. And those patterns eventually build up. Mm. And eventually you see these are all encompassed within this grand story that has Christ at the heart of it. Yeah. And Christ's story is an extra story that holds all of these other extra stories within itself. Yeah, that's awesome. If those who might not be familiar, I'm sure the Russian dolls are like those ones where you have like a, a small one and then it's contained within a little bigger one, a little bigger one, a little bigger one, and they're all kind of the same, but they're different sizes and, and they're contained within one another. And similarly, I, one of the things I was struck by as I was reading uh, your book, Actors of Exodus, was just seeing uh, you've got all at all these different levels, these kind of little mini Exodus stories, these obviously the big one, the biggest one being the Exodus itself. Um, but how how frequently this pattern is repeated over and over again, multiple times in the book of Genesis. Uh, but maybe we could move uh, forward after Exodus. What are some examples of ways that the Exodus melody continues to reverberate throughout the Old Testament? There's so many examples here, but perhaps one example is the story in First Samuel, where the Ark of God is captured um, in the Battle of Aphek with the Philistines. And then the Ark of God is taken to the land of the Philistines, who elsewhere in Genesis chapter 10 are connected with the Egyptians. And as it goes throughout the land of Philistia, it leads to plagues wherever it goes, eventually leads to the downfall of the idol of their great god Dagon. And then it's returned to the land with gifts at the end of the story. Now, that's an exodus pattern playing out, but it's an unusual one. God's people are not going into exile. God's people are not going down into the equivalent of Egypt. Rather, God goes down. Um, God is the one that um, is represented by the ark. And the ark, as it's taken in to the land of the Philistines, to the land of the enemy, it leads to judgment wherever it goes. God defeats the enemy that have taken this ark while still judging his people at the same time. And that is an example of how we see these exodus patterns playing out, not just as a repetition of the same theme again and again and again, but significant variations. So we're used to hearing the exodus theme in one particular form, or we might read it in the story of Lot and Sodom. When Lot is delivered from Sodom, there's an evening meal of unleavened bread 
given to the two visitors that come to inspect the city and to bring its judgment. There's a threat at the doorway. They're eventually delivered from um, Sodom, taken by the hand, brought to the mountain, and there's judgment upon the city. Now, that's an Exodus pattern, but it has a far darker feel to it as you hear what happens to Lot and his descendants after that. They're brought down very low. Whereas if you're reading the story of 1 Samuel and the story of the Battle of Aphek and the capture of the Ark and the victory there, it has a very different feel to it. It's bringing out different aspects of the, the story. Once again, you're seeing that God is proving in the Exodus pattern his supremacy over an opposing force, uh, his supremacy over the false gods of the Philistines. So it's not just showing his power over the Philistines, it's showing his power over Dagon. Um, you see a similar thing, I think, in the story of Jacob in the house of Laban mm. and the humiliation of the teraphim at the end of that. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's awesome. You mentioned too how uh, David, I think it was the, the life of David was one that had particularly struck or impacted you alert us to some of those exodus themes in the life of david yes david's story plays out david's story plays out against the backdrop of genesis and exodus in a quite pronounced way um if you look through the story of david he might remind you of joseph at various points being he shepherds his father's sheep he's sent out to his brothers who despise him and who think that he have he has ideas above his station he eventually ends up as um someone who's second to the king he's um someone who is also like jacob in various ways he is offered the older daughter but then of merab but then saul switches things up as the unfaithful father-in-law and he ends up marrying michael the younger daughter if we read his story more closely, we'll see other things that maybe remind us of things that have happened mm. before. He goes to the house of Nabal, and it's around the time of the sheep shearing. It's There's rival, or Nabal is angry with him and treats him unfairly, even though he's been protecting his flocks, things like that. And then he goes out to attack Nabal, and he's intercepted by Abigail sending gifts ahead of herself now if we read that story again it reminds us of the story of jacob the story of jacob where jacob spends time in the house of laban and he has esau coming to him with 400 men just as david comes with 400 men and he prevents that attack with sending gifts on ahead now abigail plays the role of jacob within the story of david nabal is laban backwards in Hebrew as in English. And so when we're reading that story, they're playing it's oh, playing whoa. out against something <laughs> we're familiar with. We can also see it against the story of Isaac and David, that David is someone who's um, like Jacob. He's seeking the blessing, but then Esau wants the blessing. Um, and Esau within the story is very much Esau. Esau, Saul is the one who despises his birthright, who does not obey the word of the lord who plays out many of the sins of esau and we can mm -hmm. see that connection with, between benjamin and esau even in the book of genesis but as we read that through we're reading a story that's charged with biblical memory wow. and i think the exodus is part of that that david is reminding us of things that happened 
to his ancestors beforehand, whether that's Joseph, whether it's Jacob, or whether it's the people with Moses. And there are points where these things will be held within a particular story. So it might be the story of fleeing from Saul when Michael disguises a teraphim household guard um, using goat's hair to deceive her father and lets down um, lets down David through the window by a, a rope. And that's playing out the story of the deception of Isaac by Rebecca using the goat's hair. It's playing out the story of the deception of Rachel's deception of Laban. It's also playing out the story of Rahab and her deception of the spies in the story of the Exodus and entering into the land of Canaan. We might also connect it with the story of the rescue of the promised son as the daughter of Pharaoh takes the deliverer of the people and saves that Hebrew child, even though her father is trying to kill him. And that all helps us to position the character of Saul within the story. He's like the men of Jericho. He's like Pharaoh. He's like the father-in-law who will not give, uh, who mistreats his son-in-law. And he's also like the wicked. He's also like the father who will not give the blessing to the right son. Um, in all these different ways, he's characterized for us by that typology. Mm. But then those Exodus themes present him in a very negative light. He is like, he has become like the Canaanite kings. And so as they're entering into the land, David is going to be struggling with Saul mm. like, his, like his ancestors struggled with the Canaanites. He's the one, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Saul constantly hardens his heart throughout the story. He's the one who, he's provided with bread in the wilderness. So David goes out and he goes to the priests and he's provided with bread there. Interestingly, he's given five loaves. I don't think that's an accident. And these sorts of struggles, again, we can see it in the story of Goliath standing against Israel for 40 days. There's an Exodus type pattern there where they're wandering in the wilderness, facing this great enemy of the people. And then David defeats the enemy and then brings them into rest. It's another Exodus motif there that I think is probably playing out. Mm. One of the things that we bring out in the book is if you read through the Psalms, again and again, you see these ways in which David is describing his experience that perhaps fit more closely in our minds with the story of the Exodus. So David is someone who has a very similar experience to that of um, those who went before him. And I think also it helps us as we pay attention to these to see the way that David's own character is being developed. By the end of the story, David has been connected with Jacob for quite some time, but there are more negative themes that come to the surface in the story after the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. At that point, David becomes attached with Jacob, the mourning father. Um, so he's connected with Jacob, who mourns over the loss of his son, Joseph, just as he mourns over the loss of his son, Absalom. And then there are other themes that come up. The story of Tamar and Amnon. Uh, Am Amnon, there are great connections there where you see certain things that are familiar from the story of Genesis, but we seem to have forgotten the coat of many colors. It's the time of sheep shearing, um, an ominous mm. time that's connected with 
some key events within the Old Testament. There's a character called Tamar who's treated um, in a vicious fashion. There's the the suggestion that the whole of the king's sons have been wiped out as a result of vengeance because of a rape. That's what happened in the story of Shechem. And now it seems to have happened to David's house. In fact, it hasn't, but it seems that way. Then there's the son that sleeps with his father's concubines um, in the story of Absalom, as in the story of Reuben. And so the story of Jacob is coming to the surface in all these ugly ways that we maybe had thought we'd overcome. Um, and so reading scripture typologically like this or figurally, um, some different language that we use for it, or musically to use that metaphor, helps us to understand the ways that scripture is presenting certain characters to us, not just telling us the story, but giving us within the way it tells the story, a sense of the meaning of particular events, the significance of particular characters. That's so powerful, man. I feel like there's such a beautiful complexity to scripture that we often miss uh, but that's so powerful when you start to see these threads and themes. Um, I think two examples that just come to mind. Uh, one is, uh, you know, the, uh, you mentioned earlier in Genesis, the lot and uh, leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. And then his wife kind of famously turns and looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. I think, but when you frame that in the Exodus typology, you know, it, it feels like it's a, it, it's a picture. It resonates later with Israel. I mean, you know, brought out of the place that's being destroyed, uh, but then turning back and, oh, we wish we could go back to Egypt. Like we, 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 uh, yeah, the, the Lot's wife is not just, um, uh, oh, she turned around and looked along her direction. <laughs> you know, like she's tied into this theme of wanting to return to the land of oppression, the land of slavery, the land of ungodliness, the land of injustice. And um, that's also going to tie into Israel's experience in the wilderness later. Um, as well as another another one that comes to mind a little bit after Exodus is the um, story with Rahab and the destruction of Jericho, where she kind of puts out the red um, scarlet cord and how um, that, you know, it, it could seem like a stretch to go, oh, it's like the blood of Jesus. Um, but there is actually this picture where it's tied, it's linked to the earlier melody of the Passover lamb, like the blood over the doorpost that protects one from the judgment that's coming upon the city. And once you have that in place and Jesus is the Passover lamb, there is this echo of Rahab being a foreshadowing of those who come under the blood of Christ that rescues us from judgment. And so I just find that so powerful, the beautiful complexity of scripture and how when you start to see these echoes interplaying off each other, they help shed light even on the fullness of what's going on in the story. I think often when we're reading these things, it's our temptation is to jump straight from the Old Testament to the New Testament, to directly move to Christ. But often moving through the story um, gives us a far richer sense of how these things point towards and ultimately terminate on the story of Christ. Often I think mm. we're too quick to make the leap. And as a result, we don't see just how powerful and rich the connections are. The other thing to notice is that these connections are part of a larger literary and typological fabric. So when you're reading the story of Lot and Sodom, 
there are the Exodus themes playing out. There are also other things playing out. If you read it against the backdrop of the previous chapter, you have three visitors coming to Abraham. He's seated in the door of the tent at the middle of the day. And then he prepares this, invites them in for a meal, prepares this great feast for them. And there is all these themes of hospitality. And then Sarah is standing in the doorway and she's promised that she will, um, she's barren, but she will be made fruitful. She will have a son, etc. But then you read the next chapter against the backdrop of that. And you see all these themes playing out again. You have two visitors arriving and... Lot is seated in the gate of the city and it's about the evening. So you have the same description of the particular time of the day these things are happening. He's seated in the doorway or in the gate as Abraham was seated in the gate in the door of his tent. Then he he welcomes them in much the same way that Abraham welcomes them. He bows his face to the ground, invites them in for a feast, prepares this feast, But then the hospitality all goes wrong and everything takes an ugly turn. And at the end of that chapter, when you see, or later on in that story, where you see Lot's wife being turned to salt, read that against the backdrop of Sarah, who was barren, being made fruitful. There's a contrast Mm. there. Those two characters are juxtaposed. Mm. Wow. And so reading the text in a literary way, we can see it operates on many different levels. There are these more these juxtapositions of particular characters or events. There are the larger patterns that we see within something like the Exodus. There are also ways within the structure wow. of a book that certain things can be paralleled with each other. That's so great. Well, uh, this is really helpful. And I, I don't want to jump to the New Testament and the gospel too quickly, but <laughs> given the, uh, the podcast here, uh, it does feel like we're, man, it, hopefully this is just a window for listeners into, by no means, it feels like we've, we've kind of looked at the tip of the iceberg here, kind of scraped the, the surface on how much there is when it comes to the, these Exodus themes resonating throughout the Old Testament. Uh, but I'm curious, maybe you could point our attention as well to kind of big picture. How does this Exodus symphony come to a climax in Christ? Like how, how, how do some of these themes, Exodus motifs shed light on his life, uh, particularly his death and resurrection, uh, and as well as the identity of the church? If you get to the first page of the New Testament, the first page of the New Testament begins with one of the most boring things that we associate the Old Testament with, a genealogy, um, connecting Christ with all these other people that have gone beforehand. <laughs> and there are key figures that are um, focused upon, um, figures like Rahab and Tamar and others like that who are brought to the surface and you're really, um, they're highlighted for us. Then at the end of the genealogy, there's this, guy called Jacob who has a son called Joseph and this guy called Joseph has dreams and then eventually he leads his people down into Egypt to protect them from and there's someone trying to kill all the baby boys um, and all these other themes playing out we've heard these things before but they're mixed up in various ways so they're now going down into Egypt to take refuge from a king within the land who's trying to kill all the baby boys. There's an inversion there of the themes. Um, It's also connecting with some themes from the Old Testament, particularly in the story of Solomon, um, where one of his rivals, um, Hadad, 
the king of Edom had to flee from Edom to go down to Egypt to take refuge as Joab and David were killing all the males within the land of Edom, or as Joab was killing all the males within the land of Edom. And so the story of Herod as an Idumean and Edomite king, it has a background that's an ugly background from the Old Testament, a sin of the house of David that is coming back to haunt them. And so Christ's story at that point is one that plays out was already playing out Exodus motifs. Then we'll see things like, out of Egypt I have called my son. That verse that is referenced is a verse that is used originally in reference to Israel being brought out of Egypt, but then in the Exodus. But then it's applied by Matthew, saying that this is really what it's about. It's about Christ being brought out of Egypt. And that confuses a lot of people. How can Matthew say it's about that. It's clearly not about that. But when you think about it more carefully, the sort of connection that he's drawing, he's saying that Christ sums up this history within himself. Um, later on, Christ is baptized in the Jordan. He cross, crosses over the Jordan, goes into the wilderness. He wanders in the wilderness for 40 days where he's tested, as Israel was tested for 40 years in the wilderness. But yet, while Israel failed, he succeeds. After they came through the waters. And so his story then... Yeah, after they came up out of the waters into the wilderness. His story then leads to, eventually, um, his death and resurrection. Now, there are many ways in which, along the way, there are themes that might um, draw our mind back to Exodus. There are ways in which the story of the feeding of the 5,000, for instance, in John 6, the way it's told, he crosses over the sea, followed by a great multitude, goes into the wilderness. In the wilderness, he provides bread miraculously for the people and then ha goes to the mountain um, where he teaches them. And that's the story of the Exodus played out in miniature. And then in the context of that, he talks about the manna. And so it's drawing our mind back to that previous story. When there's the event of the transfiguration, Jesus talks with Moses and Elijah about the exodus, literally, that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And that frames what's going to take place in his death and resurrection as an exodus-like event. Whatever is going to happen, it is given a framework by the exodus. Now, when we get to the actual event, it takes place in the context of the Passover, which, of course, is recalling all that took place at that original Exodus. But throughout the prophets, the Passover event and the significance of Exodus is not just a backwards looking thing. It's almost a statement of intent by God. God has released his people in this great Passover event. And that event is declaring his intent to lead them into a fuller and a complete enjoyment of that freedom, that one day there will be a second greater Exodus. And so Christ, when he's celebrating the Passover in the context of what he is about to do in his death and resurrection, he's providing a framework within which to see that as the fulfillment of all these forward-looking promises, this event of the original deliverance from Exodus that was never complete, that was never fully brought to its complete realization, but was always anticipating mm -hmm. something more, that God had delivered his people in an initial way, but that initial way was always anticipating one day this will happen on a far greater scale. 
And so in the New Testament, that theme of Exodus is one that wow. is always being played out. When we get to the book of Acts, we'll see it at many places. For instance, in the story of the story of the shipwreck, it's the 14th night. It's the night associated with Passover. And Paul takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And he says, no one go off the ship. You have to stay within, as it were, the house, the within the the ship and you'll be rescued and being delivered through the sea um, and then being brought up onto the land. These are themes that recall the Exodus. They're also themes that recall Christ's death and resurrection. And holding those two things together, I think, is is very important for understanding what's taking place. If we Again, we could think about the story of um, Pentecost. Pentecost was attached within Jewish tradition, not just with a particular festival associated with harvest, but also associated with the event of the giving of the law at Sinai. There are 3,000 people that end up being killed at Sinai by the Levites, killed with their swords as a result of their sin um, in concerning the golden calf. At the event of Pentecost, 3,000 people are cut to the heart and saved. We see a similar thing where the leader of the people ascends to God's presence, receives the law, and then gives it to them. In the story of Acts 2, the leader of God's people, Christ, has ascended to God's right hand and now has given out the Spirit to everyone. If we read back through the story of the Exodus, we'll see other connections with that. For instance, as the Spirit of Moses is taken and placed upon the 70 elders. And so the Old Testament and the Exodus narrative, perhaps in a very particular way, provides a framework and a selection, a grand selection of images for us to understand what Christ is doing. Christ is like the Passover lamb. Christ is like the manna. Christ is like Moses ascending Mount Sinai and giving the law. But now he's giving the law in the form of the spirit that enables us to keep the law. Christ is the one who's like Moses, who delivers the people out of Egypt. He's the one who is the one who undertakes the temptations and the testing in the wilderness. He's the one who crosses over and brings us into rest, bringing us through the Jordan. He's the one who's anointed and established for ministry that we can enter into, the, enter into as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation as Israel was established at Sinai. All of these things provide motifs, patterns, and rhythms of redemption as well. When we're celebrating week by week, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're recalling the Lord's death until he comes, but we're also recalling the event of the Passover. All that the charge meaning of that and how that was fulfilled in Christ. When we get baptized, we're recalling the deliverance of Israel from that just as we are baptized in the water, so Israel was baptized in the Red Sea, um, just as we will enter into the promised land. So they entered into the promised land through the waters, and our baptism is anticipation of that in various ways. So all these themes help us to understand where we are situated. Yeah. And Paul in the epistles and a number of the other epistles, Hebrews perhaps especially, will use these motifs to describe how Christians should think about themselves. So Paul talks about um, all our, our ancestors passed through the cloud and the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, that they drank the same spiritual drink and ate the same spiritual food. 
the manner and the rock that followed them, connecting that with Christ, but yet all these temptations that they had in the wilderness and how they failed. And then he'll say, these things happened to them as examples for us on whom the ends of the ages have come, that we are to understand ourselves where we stand in the wow. light of the Exodus. Wow. wow. That is so powerful, man. I, uh, I'm struck by, I, I remember when you talk about, you know, Jesus being all of these themes and motifs for us uh, and, and to us. I, I, I remember reading, I think it was uh, T.F. Torrance years ago, talking about the idea of Israel's history and story, creating almost like a language uh, with the temple, with the Exodus, sacrifice, all those things, creating a language or categories in which Jesus would make sense. <laughs> you know, and, and it seems like you're saying here, the Exodus story, it creates these categories, uh, so to speak, these themes, these motifs, these melodies to go back to the musical imagery in which it really, the Exodus will ultimately help us make sense of who Jesus is and what he's done and who we become in life with him. And I was pretty struck by that example you used of um, in Acts and how, you know, in, in, in the Exodus, uh, they come to Mount Sinai, like Moses goes up the mountain and comes down bringing the law from God. And then because of the people's rebellion, it leads to death. Uh, but then Jesus in the New Testament, similarly, he goes up the mountain, so to speak, in the ascension. And then he brings down the spirit of God, uh, which enables us to, to, to fulfill, to live and to love God with all our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. And it leads to life. Uh, and the, the echoes between those two stories, uh, yeah, the life and the spirit leading to life that Jesus has brought and given. Well, man, Alistair, this is so helpful um, for our listeners. I highly recommend uh, this. Uh, hopefully this was a taste of going, man, uh, reading the Bible intertextually like this, like seeing the, the, the links and echoes and all between stories and, and the way that this helps um, get a fuller understanding of what's going on in the story. I find it so fascinating. Uh, and for those of you who are looking at uh, digging in, dip, dipping your toe in the water a bit deeper, I would highly recommend uh their book, Alistair and Andrew's book, Echoes of Exodus, Tracing Themes of Redemption Through Scripture. Uh, there's another book with the same title uh, I saw out online, so um, uh, just make sure, look for the one by Alistair. I don't know, the other one might be good or bad, I don't know, but uh, the one I would it's recommend. A good book. <laughs> great. The one I recommend for you here, though, is, is Alistair's. It's a great book. Um, Alistair, thank you again so much for being with us, and best wishes with everything you, you're up to these days. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Tempe podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Our vision is to create disciples who seek reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We are a multi-congregation church, and our service times at our Tempe location are 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. To learn more about us or to get plugged into the life of the church by tapping the connect button on our app, we would love to hear any feedback or questions you have. Please send them to tempepodcast at redemptionaz.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next week.